Well, Susan, thank you so much for joining the Boss Mama Dama podcast. I'm so, so excited to have you. Uh, we rescheduled and I it was one of the, the best like rescheduling that I've ever had to do because you were like, I don't know if I can do that day. I'm singing at Carnegie Hall, which <laughs> takes you to that other level of like being such a badass. So I'm so excited to have you um, and that you've saved your voice and you're able to talk on the podcast. So thank you and welcome. Singing in a choir, not. <laughs> I have to give that caveat. We have Susan Crew Miller. I'll just give you a brief introduction on the podcast. You are the founder, the founding attorney of the women's litigation firm. You're also a, a volunteer of the small claims arbitrator and a singer in the Cecilia Chorus of New York, where you, like I said, perform at Carnegie Hall twice a year. You also hold a black belt in Kung Fu, which is this is awesome. And you were the first female wrestler in your high school, which I, again, I applaud you because being the first female anything in a sport, not an easy task. You graduated in 2002 from Tulane University, where you majored in music theory, English, and sociology. And in 2006, you went to NYU School of Law. And you now live in Brooklyn, where I used to live in I miss it so much um, with your husband and your two daughters. And this is one of my favorite stats on, on your website, but of all your accomplishments, you're most proud of your experience as the tooth fairy. It's totally true. I really am the most amazing tooth fairy. fairy. I write them little poems with loving life lessons. <laughs> <laughs> Which I feel like you need. There was like a post that I saw somewhere. It was like first grade's crazy. Like everybody's just learning and and doing new things. And then your teeth are falling out all over the place. It was like something along those lines. I'm like, that is a weird phase in life where your teeth are just falling out. But I met you through a friend and it was a really amazing just story of how you've founded your the law firm the women's litigation firm and what led you there and I, I'd love if you could give some of your backstory for listeners sure um growing up I think my parents always just kind of assumed I would become a lawyer because I'm a little bit combative by nature <laughs> um, I, I was very argumentative growing up I was a lot of trouble uh, but I'm also very smart. And so I would often win my arguments with my parents and uh, they just said, oh, you're going to be a lawyer, you're going to be a lawyer. I've always had an activist bent and uh, I really, there were some lawyers whose work I had always admired. So uh, it was, it was a little bit felt like a natural course. Um, I had mm -hmm. no, I, I don't have any family who went into law. My parents actually uh, both didn't graduate from college. My mom later did around the time I did. So it was, uh, yet uh, I was the first in my family to go to graduate school and <laughs> go into my legal career. After law school, I, I was really interested in doing public interest work. I first started at a nonprofit representing low-income tenants who were facing eviction. 
uh, and then later went to a very small, you know, public interest e private firm that represented tenants. Uh, so I got a lot of litigation experience there, which I really loved. But, um, you know, I had my first child with no incident. I basically mm -hmm. just said, I'm leaving for six months. You don't have to pay me. See you in six months. And right. so there wasn't much to discuss. Uh, but when I had my second child, uh, my boss said that was too long. I'm going to need you back sooner. So we really neg extensively negotiated a leave plan uh, where I would be gone effectively for five months, but with a little bit of a staggered return and some work mm -hmm. from home during the latter half of that period. So um, you had that established going into your, your pregnancy or when you announced yes. you were pregnant, you, you had everything negotiated for that, for your second pregnancy. Yeah. And how much and time I, you'd be out. I, we had real, I had put a lot of time and energy into it because uh, on my first maternity leave, I had ended up agreeing to do some extra work during that time. And uh, you know, the second time around, you have a little bit more of a sense of just how absolutely batshit insane you are yeah. right after you have a baby and for those <laughs> subsequent months. And so it was very important right. to me to preserve that time and to avoid, uh, you know, any feelings of guilt or shame or mania. <laughs> yeah. I just wanted yeah, no, to I mean, focus. <laughs> it's a full-time um, job. Yeah. We, I right. do another episode where I'm talking to, to someone in, in the human resources profession and we talk about setting yourself up for that maternity leave and knowing that it's not time off, you know, and you have to let everybody know that it's not time off. This is one of the hardest things you have to do. So it's good that like going into your second pregnancy, you were like, I've gone through this. I know this. And this is, you have to honor my time. I'm also someone who always takes on way too much. So mm -hmm. with my first baby, I did not just cloth diapering, but cloth wipes. And no. I was spending all this time and energy every day doing so much laundry. And so my second baby, I was like, absolutely not. No more cloth diapering, no more oh cloth wipes. I'm, I want to focus on what's important and not waste my time doing all this nonsense. Yeah. Um, not that it's nonsense. I know it works for a lot of people. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so anyway, seven weeks into my leave, in other words, uh, while I was still completely off the grid or supposed to be. My, my boss reached out and said, you know, I'm really sorry, but I made a mistake. This isn't going to work. I need you back to work ASAP. Um, I, and basically said, I need you to come back to work. That, and that was that from his perspective. Wow. So I, uh, you know, I, I remember my very first response was, you know, I'm still off the grid. I'm coming back next week let's discuss next week when I'm back. Like it was my last week of being totally off. I just, I wanted to focus. Yeah. And, um, and so when I came back, I said, no, you know, that's <laughs> no, <laughs> I'm at home. I have a newborn. Mm. Um, like like who you're going to get back is, is not Susan. <laughs> like, you right. just want to tell your boss right. that like <laughs> I could come back physically, mentally. It's, it's not me. <laughs> so anyway, we spent a lot of time arguing about it. I really pushed back. Eventually, we came to an agreement where I, I sort of made a minor concession and agreed to increase my hours a little more. One of the things that was especially frustrating was he wasn't, uh, I was already going to be paid full time for this half time part. So he was basically asking me to work for free. But, you know, I, I just, we had so many emails and phone calls about his trying to browbeat me to come back. Um, that I just, I felt so guilty. I spent so much mental and emotional energy towards 
him uh, and really extremely negative energy. <laughs> I remember crying in front of my older kid for the very first time. And, you know, she, I remember she tried to rock me in her lab, like I rock, rocked her. And I remember her asking, was Baba mean to you? And I said, no, 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 lovey. <laughs> you know, Aww. someone else was mean to me. <laughs> so, but I just, I felt such overwhelming guilt and, uh, and I felt a, a lot of shame that I wasn't able to just sort of put it all aside and that I was spending so much time and energy talking to him and focusing on him, but I was getting so angry. And I thought if I was a better mom, I would just be able to put that aside and focus on my baby instead of getting distracted. So, yeah. Uh, you know, my young, my kids are now seven and nine and I could still easily bring myself to tears thinking about it. Oh, um, God. And I just became so angry. I said, you know what? Through this, I'm going to go start a pregnancy rights law firm. <laughs> I didn't really know anything about my rights at the time, but I just thought, if this is so difficult for me, you know, I'm a white woman, I'm a lawyer, mm-hmm. I own a home, I'm married to another lawyer. Um, how hard must this be for others in this situation? I, right. I mostly managed to stand my ground and stay home, but if I didn't have all of those senses of security and privilege, I'm sure I would have just had to gone back to work in order to keep my job. And I would have felt even worse than I, than I did feel. So I, you know, a couple months later, I started my firm. Uh, we, you know, I, at first it was just me in my bathrobe with little Sadia next to me <laughs> in my <laughs> dining room. <laughs> And I focused a lot on growing the business and building the business and, you know, building expertise in the practice area and hiring a really stellar team of extraordinarily qualified litigators and uh, other brilliant folks. Uh, And yeah, today there's 10 of us. We have sort of expanded our practice areas over time. Uh, where initially we focused primarily on employment discrimination, which we still do very heavily, but we we now have expanded into all sorts of, as we say, feminist litigation, where we represent victims and survivors of sexual abuse uh, by other individuals and also in the medical setting. Wow. That, I feel like you, you read about more and more often in the medical setting. So that's, that's, it's, a whole other discussion, but I think like where, where you started and you kind of got your foundation and especially in, in employment and where the, that happens and how it happened to you personally is really amazing because I think that's also a lot about what my, this podcast is about is kind of taking those shit situations that you, you're going to be in as a working professional mom um, you know, there's the, you're constantly living in conflict, like you were explaining in, in your situation of feeling shame and guilt for not being there for your children, but also feeling the pressure from work. It's, there's constantly those dualities, but you did something, you, you kind of, you alchemized the shit situation. You, you turned it into gold with your law firm. So it's, it's really amazing. And I, I definitely applaud you for that. I think one thing, um, kind of connecting with you and, and your team has just been like a lot of, of learning for me. Um, I think we've all 
experienced from in one way or another, just the Me Too movement and how much more we're now aware of what is sexual discrimination or harassment, especially in the workplace. But how would you, as a legal profession professional, kind of describe that to, to a lay person? Sure. Um, so uh, thank you for <laughs> your kind words. I mean, I think all of us can turn our shit into something positive. <laughs> and, you know, when I get a call from someone or when our firm gets an inquiry from someone who says I'm on maternity leave and my company's bothering me, or I'm, I'm at, in the workplace and I don't know, is this sexual harassment? Is this okay? I, I feel so grateful every single time I get those calls. I feel so grateful that I get to help people who are in, you know, suffering in the way that I did. Um, it's such a, it feels really, really good to help people and to prevent yeah. other people from going through what you went through or mm -hmm. forging a new path forward. I, I really feel lucky every single day. You know, it, it, from a legal standpoint, in terms of what counts, uh, that's the main question people usually have when they call us. Is right. what I'm going through bad enough to be worth taking legal action? Mm -hmm. Which is also so fucked up to think about. Sorry, if I, I swear a bit on this podcast. Oh, but me like, too. To think about, you know, you have to ask that question it's like our tolerance level as women of like what we're used to kind of going through and what we expect to to deal with is so, so ridiculously high. And you have to tell somebody, you know, not every instance is going to be like Harvey Weinstein. Right. Sorry, I had to, to, to no, just jump no. in and comment. Um, I mean, my, my, my quick answer, the TLDR version is just call us. You know, we are here to help. We are happy to help. I, we love helping. And so if you're experiencing any sort of doubt about, <laughs> you know, whether your situation is okay, A, it's probably not. B, right. call us. We'll always tell you the truth. We have a lot of uh, inquiries where we say that really sucks. It sounds horrible, but your best course of action is not to proceed with an attorney here's some advice, you know, we do a lot of wordsmithing, here's, you know, how, here's how you could approach this with your boss or your colleague or whatever. But uh, one thing that a lot of people don't know, and this is sort of my, another valuable legal tool, is that if you complain at the workplace about any sort of prohibited discrimination, including gender discrimination. So any kind of sexual harassment, mistreatment, disparate treatment, and things get worse for you after that. You're, the, the company retaliates against you. Retaliation is its own claim, separate and apart from the discrimination claim, so long as your original complaint was made in good faith. So if you make a good faith complaint, and you are retaliated against, now you have a legal claim. Now it's more, I'm oversimplifying, obviously, you know, yeah. under the federal laws, you have to have specific adverse actions taken against you, but New York City and New York State really have kind of the gold standard in terms of their anti-discrimination laws. Uh, if you are treated less well because of your gender in New mm -hmm. York, 
you have a claim. And that means anything. That means being subject to inappropriate remarks. That means being dismissed, you know, mansplaining. (laughs) I mean, no one's probably going to bring a case based solely on something like mansplaining, but these are cultural issues in the company. Companies tend to either care or not care. And you know what kind of place you were, where you were. It's no secret. You'll find out very quickly. So usually yeah. where there's smoke, there's fire. Like um, if something as, as minor as minor as mansplaining might be right. happening on a regular basis, that's that could be a clue that something a little bit more, I don't know, I guess a, just a little bit more egregious could potentially be happening at the company. Right. And yeah. we're never afraid to contact companies where, you know, there's microaggressions involved, but nothing overt especially in our race discrimination cases, this comes up a lot where, you know, our black female clients often are described as aggressive or subject to complaints about their tone. Mm. We, we say, you know what, your white colleagues probably aren't getting those same complaints and we feel comfortable on that basis, reaching out to the company and saying, you need to stop (laughs) doing this. Right. I mean, most of our clients, of course, have already been fired or want to leave the company. So we say what you did was wrong. Mm -hmm. Now, another thing I think that's important for your listeners to know is when you reach out to an attorney, when you hire an attorney, uh, in the vast majority of cases, we reach out to the company. You don't start with a public lawsuit where you're on the cover of Time magazine with your fist raised in the air. Right, right. Many of our, most of our clients aren't looking for that. They're just looking to live their lives and not suffer. Mm -hmm. So I think it's sort of important to know that when you're hiring an attorney, you're hiring someone to help solve your problem. You're not hiring someone to necessarily make a huge public splash. Mm -hmm. In 99% of cases, we reach out to the employer first and say, and give them an opportunity to try to resolve the situation confidentially. So long right. as that's what our client wants. Mm-hmm. And in, in the vast majority of cases, that is what happens. We end up coming to a successful resolution without having to file, without having to go public. Mm-hmm. Um, now, of course, some people want to go public and we're flexible. Right, right. <laughs> we love litigating. We love suing companies. But um, what we love even more is crafting a path that works best right so some of the the first step could just be your team representing someone reaching out to the company and and maybe like discussing with like the head of hr like this is a problem you need to address it so this this person could continue to work here if that's what they want um uh just with one small clarification which is that as attorneys we're -hmm. not allowed to speak to what's called a represented party so right. we, once we get involved, the company gets their attorneys involved and we only speak to their attorneys, Right. I, I, which is actually a very, very positive thing in most cases. I know there's kind of a stereotype uh, that once lawyers get involved, they overcomplicate things, they make them messier, or they just want to file a ton of papers. And that may be true in other practice areas, but in employment law, once the company has to lawyer up, they have someone who is familiar with these issues and can, 
kind of help us talk some sense into them. <laughs> right. A good lawyer representing the company will say, stop. <laughs> you yeah. know, you, you fucked up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so they kind of help us in a lot of cases where, you know, exec company executives and companies, they make emotional decisions. They behave emotionally no less than our clients. So it's nice to have lawyers involved on the other side who, you know, we don't see these conversations happening, but they're, we know they're happening. Right. So, uh, so kind of going back to, we were saying if, if somebody's feeling like before they reach out to you, before your team begins the representation process, say a, a woman, a person is feeling uncomfortable in their work situation, something or a number of things have happened what should they do maybe in, in kind of preparation before they reach out to you? What's the best way to be your own best advocate in those situations? So first of all, I'd rather they reach out to us immediately than feel like they have to do anything right. before reaching out to us because we can help them figure out mm -hmm. how, like a lot of what we do is more political than legal where we're saying, okay, Let's look at who do you report to? Who do they report to? Who are your peers? Who are your colleagues? Where can you find support? Who should you approach? Uh, but in terms of what to do, you know, the number one thing every lawyer will say, and I'm no exception, is document everything. And in today's day and age, that's quite easy. Send text messages, you know, send emails. If you have a conversation with a supervisor or anyone at your work, memorialize it. Mm -hmm. Even if it's just an email or a text, there's, there's nothing um, negative or hostile about sending an email that says, hey, so-and-so just wanted to memorialize our conversation earlier today. And I think that the difficulty people struggle with is they want to complain, but they're worried that they'll be perceived as negative or hostile. And so we end up helping oftentimes with wordsmithing you know, emails or texts. And I think the important thing to know is just how to stay positive when you're making these complaints for your own peace of mind. You know, I wish yeah, that wasn't yeah. so important, but it, it the reality is uh, nobody likes conflict, right, understandably. And so I think that, you know, other than docu document everything, <laughs> document everything. Right, yeah. I mean, that's, all, that's always good advice in the workplace. I think especially in, in, instances like that, if, if you have the opportunity to document, document, and even, and you're saying even documenting and just kind of recapping something that might've happened like five minutes ago, if you're like five minutes ago, I had a conversation with my manager and he said X, Y, Z, you email it to yourself. That's documenting. That's a verifiable capture of that instance. Absolutely. I think it's even better to send it to the person so that, you know, if they don't correct the record, it, it makes it harder for them to later dispute what happened in the conversation. If you sent an email saying, Here, here's what we just discussed. Um, my other big piece of advice would just be to try to find allies. A lot of times people reach out to us and they feel very alone. Uh, and I think many times we've seen our clients, prospective clients, be pleasantly surprised at how much support they can find in other people. We've even had our clients, you know, reach out to former colleagues on LinkedIn, people who used to work there that they didn't even overlap with and say, hey, I'm having some trouble here. 
I just want to know what happened with you. Being unafraid to forge those personal connections is something that will serve you very well in life in general, but it will also serve your legal case. And we always encourage everyone to find moral support wherever they can, especially in others. Uh, it can, it's a very, very powerful thing, having support, having other people who are in your situation. And, you know, for all you know, there might be other people who are suffering in silence and feeling alone. So we always mm -hmm. encourage uh, everyone to kind of reach out to your colleagues, forge connections. That's where the strength is. Right. Find real strength in numbers. Even if they're not interested in participating in your case or any sort of litigation, you are improving the quality of your own life by gaining some moral support for yourself. So, so if you do have someone supporting your argument, you said that they don't have to necessarily be taking part in the actual litigation or joining you in like a class action suit or anything like of that nature. They're literally just affirming what you went through and, and what you said or happened. Right. I mean, mm -hmm. optimally, you know, at the end of the day, if, if we end up pursuing litigation, we need as many witnesses as possible. Right. But again, most cases settle without the need for litigation. Right. One thing that you hear a lot too is just you know, women are, it's, it's nerve wracking. Like, even if you're saying like going forward to a friend or, or asking a friend or somebody who else who went through something with you in that situation, whatever it might have been, um, you know, no matter how bad it is, there's a, I think a lot of women are afraid and there's, there's good reason for it. You know, you don't, you don't want to be you don't want to have to carry that cross forever, I think is, is one thing you hear a lot. And, you know, there's also kind of like the him to movement where you then become the kind of antagonizer in this situation, the, 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 whoever might have wronged you could become in some way like a victim. So what is the, what's your advice to women who are, are feeling like they need to come forward, feeling like they need to do something, but they could be too afraid of, of the recourse? whether it's professional, social, whatever it might be. I think you're a hundred percent right that people are afraid and also that they're right to be sadly. There is a lot of, there's a reason why there's a cause of action for retaliation. And that's because it's so common. Um, I think the first, when, when we, talk to someone who remains employed, our first questions, or among our first questions usually are, what are your goals? Do you wanna keep working there? How easily are you gonna be able to find another job if that's what you want? Are you already applying for other jobs? You always, you have to put yourself first. And if you are at a place where you are fear retaliation, you know, for example, if you, think if I complain, I think I'm going to get fired, then I would say don't complain unless and until you have some sort of financial safety net. Um, it, it, these are complicated decisions and you owe allegiance to no one but yourself or, or mm -hmm. first and foremost to yourself. I never think people need to complain, you know, I, I think you need to set things up in a way that makes everything work for yourself. 
Um, right. We, a lot of employment attorneys will say, don't quit your shitty job. Don't quit your shitty job. And we just, we take the opposite approach. We're like, <laughs> why would you stay in harm's way? It's true that quitting your job can jeopardize the value of your case in some ways or jeopardize your negotiating position. The case is supposed to be helping you. You're not supposed right. to be putting yourself in harm's way just to help your case. That's horrible. So what, like, what would the benefit be of, of not quitting your shitty job? <laughs> if you quit your job, you know, you're, you have to prove your damages in a case. And part mm-hmm. of your damages include economic damages, which is um, what money you could have made if you hadn't suffered from your situation and then or gotten fired. And so if you quit voluntarily, you have to establish in order to make your case that you suffered what's called a constructive discharge, meaning it's as though you were discharged because the circumstances were so intolerable. Um, it's, right. it's like they, they effectively fired you by making it a place where it's unsafe to work and you can no longer work. And that can be a high legal standard. But I say, who cares? Do you, need, you only have live once. Staying in a hostile work environment is so that you can, you know, establish these economic damages or <laughs> so it's not to jeopardize your potential economic damages. It's no different than throwing yourself in front of a car with the hopes of pursuing a personal injury case. <laughs> that's a good analogy. Yeah, <laughs> that's so true. And it's also kind or, of or refusing to treat, you know, if you did get physically injured, not treating it. So that you cause yourself more pain and suffering so you can get more money for the pain and suffering. That would be right. crazy. Yeah. Because I feel like the real pain and suffering isn't the monetary side of things. It's the emotional. Yeah. How does that fit in? Well, emotional distress is another component of damages. And so that's something that it can feel icky to try to monetize that. And I think that's something that it's just, it's the lawyer's job to help our clients understand how your pain can be monetized. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, money is the only form of currency in our justice system. Sometimes we've been able to secure apologies for our clients, but it's pretty rare. It's extremely rare, I would say. Uh, So... It is what it is. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's something you just have to come to terms with. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, so it's also, you know, money is the language companies speak. They care about their bottom lines. They're, they don't have feelings that will get hurt. They have a wallet that we can hurt. Right. I mean, I guess the one thing to be said is making public or at least putting forward the fact that, you know, somebody did suffer emotional damages. They, they did have you know, some, some core attacks on the, their sense of self because of their employer. Um, you know, that's nothing a, a company really wants. And I can't imagine most like fortune 500 companies would want out there in the world, um, especially with how, with how competitive it is for talent right now. <laughs> like you don't want to be known as, you know, a sexist work environment or a toxic work environment or hostile work environment for women or, or anybody. So, yeah. Especially companies. I mean, it's funny because there's some companies that have 
put a lot of effort into their public messaging. <laughs> and there's just, there's very little correlation, if any, between a company's public messaging about their equitable workplace and how worker friendly they are and what we see in the reality. Yeah, that's, that's, that's very true. I think there's a lot of hypocrisy out there, but I think like that, that also goes back to when you're talking about like the, the instances and kind of the emotional um, distress and, and suffering that somebody might have from um, their, their different, uh, whatever their complaint might be. There's also the, like you were saying too, depending on which, which route you go, it can be an emotionally draining process. I, I have to imagine. So like, no matter what legal action you take or do not take, you have to kind of put it all out there, right? It's like, you know, if you were, if you were to be um, a, a victim of a, a physical sexual assault, you know, that goes to court most often than not. So, you know, and that can be a, a lot of times a very draining process for somebody to keep reliving those events. So how do you, especially knowing that somebody is going to need support, what's your advice for, I guess, like identifying those like really earnest advocates. There's a lot of people who would say that they're an advocate for women's rights, gay rights, um, Black Lives Matter. But sometimes when you have to like put your own ass on the line, you kind of see a different story. So how do you find those like actual advocates for women's rights? That's such a great question. And, you know, I made a little note to myself when we were chatting before the show about the Me Too movement and just complicity and how hard, how many people will just not want to get involved and how I was just sort of brainstorming based on our conversation and thinking about how I think the next level, the next step is targeting people who are afraid to stand up and who are afraid to get involved and who in every situation, you know, your Harvey Weinsteins, your Bill Cosby's, your Andrew Cuomo's, there's a huge crowd of people who are covering for the behavior. <laughs> and that's insane. Right. There's a yeah. huge number of people who know what's going on and they just go along with it. So I don't really have a great answer. I mean, I think just as a society, we need to start targeting these people who are complicit. The whole spectrum from people who are actively participating in the abuse by enabling it to people who aren't really involved, but they know what's going on and they're just afraid to speak up. And, and I don't mean to denigrate those fears. I completely understand them. But yeah. I think, you know... <laughs> It's so common. It's it's very hard to get, you know, witnesses to get to want to get involved. They don't want to get involved. I have so much love and gratitude and appreciation when we have someone who <laughs> who's like, I I'm not involved. This didn't happen to me personally, but I was there. I saw it, and and I'm happy to help. Those are the heroes. Yeah, it's like you know wrong from right. Like if right. you see it happen, don't just don't just pretend you didn't. I think that's also like we were just talking about like the morning show, like Jennifer Aniston's character is so complicated, but it really exposed, especially to a lot of my friends, you know, working in marketing, working in advertising, 
you know, Mad Men is not a thing of the past. Like is there's a, it's still there. And we talk about her character and how a lot of women are like, God, you know, it wasn't happening to me, but I was complicit or I saw it happen. I knew that this person could be that way, but it didn't happen to me. It wasn't negatively impacting me. So I didn't say anything or I didn't try to correct their behavior. And it's like that question of like, well, how, how guilty are you then? Because by not saying something or not doing something or, or even just saying like, Hey, buddy, like, don't be such an ass, you know, you then could have impacted somebody so much more down the line where they, they didn't feel, they didn't have that same kind of brush it off their shoulders attitude to what that person said. There's an attitude of just being a little bit complicit, but I think it's also just the tolerance level and how it is such a systemic thing that we're still fighting. You're still very much fighting against. So it's like, is it the people? Is it the situation? Is it society? Like, how do you fix something that is so systemic? I don't know. I don't, I don't know if you have an answer for that, but it's like, it really puts it out there. I think, I, I think the more we talk about it, and the more we sort of just identify this as an issue, it's so common. And, and another example that just comes to mind, you know, I, 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 as I always feel like, okay, I'm white. If I see racism anywhere, it's my job to, to speak up very vocally because it's easier for me. And, you know, I see a lot of examples like on Twitter <laughs> where uh, in a meeting, you know, it's so hot, like black women, as one example, um, who are talked over mansplained, say, criticized for their tone, and who will speak up at a meeting, and then later on, will have a bunch of their white colleagues come up to her and say, I'm so glad you said something. Um, right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's like, thanks for taking the bullet. Right. And it's like, well, you should have said something. Yeah. You should have said something before she said something. You were there. You saw it. It was easier for you to speak up. We see it with hate crimes on, on the subway, people being, uh, you know, bullied on the subway or hate crimes lately against Asian Americans, for example. I kind of think that people just need practice too. And I always think back to, you know, this, this may sound a little bit off topic, but the first time I, when my first child was maybe seven or eight months old, I, we were on the subway together. And I remember I was carrying her in the little uh, Bjorn, what's the more comfortable one called? I, I, I remember know. I used the baby Bjorn for my first kid. And then the second one, I found this much more comfortable one. I went, oh, oh you have to tell me what the com- more comfortable one So much one better. Is. It's just the one, it, they only can face inward. Mm. That's why I didn't use it at first. Anyway, <laughs> oh, the ergo, the ergo. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> Way more comfortable than especially for me. I'm very tiny. Yeah, I mean, I I love the Bjorn, but then it also like after a little while, it just killed your back. And there was uh, like, the oh. ergo is a million times more comfortable, at least for me. Anyway, I had my baby in in then the Bjorn. So it was my first one, and it, we were on the subway early in the morning, and and this guy came up to us who I don't know if he was drunk or what suffering from some sort of mental illness or what but he just he immediately had a unstable presence that felt very threatening 
And I remember he came over to us and he was talking to me and saying, oh, your baby's so cute. And he kind of like touched her, put his hand on her back. And I just, mm. I was frozen in fear and shock. And I was just waiting for him to go away. And he did go away pretty quickly. But after he got off the subway, I remember thinking, next time this happens, I'm going to say something. Right. I just remember I had been so sort of frozen and, and didn't know what to do and didn't know how to react that I didn't say anything. And I just quietly waited for him to leave. And a few months later, I had a similar experience, but on a very crowded train, this time coming home at rush hour and where a guy who just came up and he was being friendly and said, oh, look at your baby. And he started touching my baby. And I screamed, I said, don't touch my baby. And like some people on the subway, like he was just being friendly. Like he, he wasn't doing anything wrong. And I just, I was like, I had decided not to care. <laughs> right. Yeah. I was like, my allegiance is to her and yeah. my job is to protect her. And who cares if I look that shit? And, you know, some other people said like, good job, you know, <laughs> well, yeah. like, I understand, but it took a practice. crowded subway is no excuse for unwanted touching, right. even for babies. <laughs> <laughs> No, good for you. It's also but, like those instances where you see people sitting down and an elderly person comes on with a cane or a pregnant okay. woman's on the train. And I, I remember the first couple of times that would happen, I'd look around and be like, can somebody get up? And like, I, I was too nervous to say something. And then it took like me getting pregnant and seeing another pregnant woman on the train, mm -hmm. and like saying to someone, hey, she's nine months pregnant. Anybody going to get up and give her your seat? I'm so I was just, glad like, you do that. I do that too. And like, 99.9% of people don't do that. And yeah. so that's a good start with that, everyone. Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. That's good practice. When you're on the subway, don't just look down and play on your phone. Yeah. I mean, those are also, yeah, those are also instances too we were talking about where there's maybe somebody who could be, who's actually like a, a bit of a threat. Like maybe the, mm -hmm. they're coming across as potentially unstable. Like people don't often jump into action. I think it takes a very specific kind of person to be okay with standing up for a stranger in an instance where they could physically suffer. But when it's something in your office or it's something in your professional life and you're seeing other people be attacked and you're afraid to say something, you're not afraid you're going to be physically harmed. You're afraid you're going to suffer a consequence. And it's like, in my mind, it's like, I struggle with the, this kind of self-centeredness around that, where you're watching somebody maybe on a regular basis, or even just once deal with something that's going to be so much more traumatizing than you potentially having to like better advocate for yourself in your career. Like if you're willing to allow somebody else's behavior to dictate you know, your career advancement, like, what does that say about you? Yeah. And another thing, though, to keep in mind in these situations is sometimes people will be scared at first, but then once enough people get involved, it's less scary. So I yeah, would encourage like Harvey Weinstein. Right, right. So it can feel discouraging at first, but don't just never give up, never give up. Um, I mean, don't never give up. You can make the strategic decision to give up if you're like, this is a lost cause, but don't give up just because, you know, one 
somebody says, I see what's happening, but I'm not willing to do anything. If you get three people who are saying that, then they now maybe they'll change their minds. Yeah. I'd have to say, I mean, everybody has at least one. I think every woman you talk to has at least one um, story. One, one of my stories, I had a manager for a long time and I was pretty young. I was, I was maybe a year or two out of college and my manager was just harassing me on a regular basis, like commenting on my weight, commenting on the fact that I was single, like just making jokes. And he was kind of like the funny guy on the team. And I actually remember going forward to his manager, like our team lead and saying, you know, this is, this person's really, he's my manager and he's making me really uncomfortable. These comments, it's really affecting me. And it was, you know, you're in your twenties and your boss, a man is telling you on a regular basis that you're getting fat, you know, or like, this is why you're single and like stupid jokes like that. And I just remember their response was, well, you know, you know, he's saying that, right? Cause he has a crush on you. And I was just like, oh my God. I remember hearing that and just being like, are you fucking kidding me? And, but also knowing like, okay, this isn't going to get any better. Right. They're not going right. to, they don't see his bad behavior. They're excusing his bad behavior. Mm-hmm. So the only way to really, to really change that situation was see it a little bit from their perspective and be like, well, I think that's a really uncomfortable thing for both of us then to be in this management situation when there's feelings like that's not allowed at the company. You know, if we were to start dating then, which I would never (laughs) (laughs) like, that's that's such genius. Oh, this poor guy. What's he going to do with this crush? What is he going to do with his office boners? I don't know. (laughs) Solve that problem. God. That's so hard for him. We don't want him to feel frustrated. Yeah. So that was uh, like my one advice to women. It's like, if you, who've also been in this situation, you don't feel like you have any kind of advocacy. If there's like an immediate way to get out of that situation by just kind of manipulating the people mm-hmm. who are obviously approving it, that, that was my, that was my learning moment. But in reality, I should have taken further steps uh, and maybe, 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 yeah. It's always easier once you're gone from the company. It's always easier. (laughs) Um, But, you know, in New York State and city, the statute of limitations is three years, uh, which is a good statute of limitations. So, uh, you know, you have time to get out of there, get out of the bad situation and, you know, regather yourself. Hopefully all your listeners have good therapists. Yeah, (laughs) we all should. I and, um, and then you have time to decide and figure it out. Yeah, no, it's very true. Well, I know it's, I've, I've taken up a lot of your time and you have very valuable time. So thank you so much, Susan. This was amazing. This was such great, great advice. And, um, you know, I really hope that women aren't in this situation, but if they are absolutely reach out to you and your team. Pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Thanks again to Susan for being on the podcast. If you'd like to learn more about Kramiller, the feminist litigation firm, you can find their website at C-R-U-M-I-L-L-E-R.com. And if you enjoy listening to the podcast, please rate and review. You can also follow me on social media at Boss Mama Jamma. 
email me at bossmamajamapodcasts at gmail.com. And you can also further support the podcast on Patreon. Thanks and tits up, mama. You got this.